0: Listening to the Salt Churches Podcast. Here you can listen to messages, inspiration, and lessons learned about planting micro churches all across the nation. Thank you for tuning in. To find more information, you can visit us at www.saltchurches.com. This podcast is brought to you today by Salt Churches founder Parker Green.
1: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, um, just want to say, first of all, men's conference was amazing. It was a good time being there. And I love being in a room worshiping with men um, and like just men in a room because every time we started worship, it just sounds like war. It's um, it's loud. It's in a small room. Um, the beds are terrible. Um, it's cold, um, but uh, it's cold for me. At least, this is like beautiful weather. This is like a bonus day for you guys right now, isn't it? Like when it gets below 50 in California, everyone starts wearing like down jackets. Um, just to give you a little bit, uh, those of you that weren't here last month, give you a little bit of an intro to myself. Um, I'm Parker Green, like I was said before. Um, I live in Orange County, California, um, in a city called Costa Mesa, um, with my wife, um, who is lovely and an evangelist herself, and just a powerhouse of a human being. Um, she's watching the kids over these last few days. Man, I really miss them. It's been like four days. I think this is like my longest time away. I feel like a kid that's at summer camp. Um, and then, uh, we have a little girl on the way. So, uh, two boys, David and Ethan, and then a little girl coming, Summer Kingsley Green, um, on April 30th. So, we're all done having kids, um, I think, um, but <laughs> we got one out of diapers. The other one we're working on still. Uh, but I just, uh, I'm so excited to be here this morning because uh, Bob asked me, funnily enough, to preach on a similar thing that he preached on last week. And it can be honestly a little intimidating to preach on the meaning of life um, after someone who has a, a few more miles on the odometer, um, to be honest. But I want to speak specifically um, to my generation this morning, um, and there's a reason for that, and we're not like the up-and-coming generation anymore. Like, I'm a millennial. I'm 33. I've got two kids. I've started four micro churches. We're like, we're in it. We're in the world now. We're doing the thing, and I don't know. Some of you are remembering your 30s. Some of you are in the middle of your 30s right now, but... This is a time of life where you're really sorting out what in the world is going on, but you're drinking from a fire hose at the same time. It's like I've got kids, I've got work. I remember when I first moved to California and um, we started Salt Churches. We had, <laughs> we had, we had an interest barbecue, right? So that's what we did to start churches. That, what we knew, we start house churches. We start micro churches in homes. They multiply, and we send more people out to start more churches in their homes. We had an interest barbecue at our house, and um, probably 60 people came to my little two-bedroom apartment um, in Huntington Beach, California, which is like, yes, like we've got a great start. So many people are excited about this. Then I said, at the beginning of the meeting, I said, look, if you want to be a part of Salt Churches, the expectation will be that you make disciples. Anyone want to take a stab at how many people showed up the next week? (laughs) <laughs> we literally had a church of seven or eight people starting the next week. So, let's go. So excited. Usually preaching to a group of 150 or so, we had we were campus pastors in New York of two different campuses used to that kind of church and I step into a church running five or six people to say the least, I had a pretty serious identity crisis. And my wife my patient, lovely, wonderful wife, I would pretend to work, right? Like, I would pretend like I had things to do, but I had like five or six people in our church, and I remember together we, um, we wrote a book, right? So we wrote a book for new Christians called Basic Christianity, and it just walks people through how to pray, walks people through how to do discipleship, walks people through simple ways how to, how to read the Bible, And so I said, look, here's what I'll do to earn income for the family, right? I'll go and I'll sell some of these books. I'm going to go. There's so many churches in Southern California, it's insane, right? So I'm just going to knock on some doors, sit down with some lead pastors, and sell these books. So I'll tell you one particular story where I actually showed up. Um, It was a really old uh, Baptist church. Walked in. Sat down with a lead pastor, funnily enough, managed to get him. He was living in a house right behind the church, and he came out, sits down with me. And I'm trying to sell him these basic Christianity books. And I'm like, I'm struggling, like mentally, (laughs) physically, (laughs) like struggling. Like, why did I move to Southern California? This is right after I got a raise and health insurance, and we had a baby on the way. I have a three-month-old kid at home in this apartment in Huntington Beach, and I'm like, the only thing that I can do is like sling these books right now. And you just feel like, <laughs> I felt like a vacuum salesman for Christianity. And I'm I'm showing up to this guy's church and he's like, you know what? We haven't had a new person in a really long time. And I'm like, oh no, this is going to become a counseling appointment. And I'm like, okay, so you don't really have use for books for new believers then? He's like, no, not really, but I'll tell you what. I'll give you $5. (laughs) And I was like, okay. I was very insulted, but I took the money (laughs) because I'm like, I can get something with this, at least a gallon of gas. And that was the last day that I went around to different churches and sold books. And I remember in that time, Of, I don't know, it was probably six to eight months. And, you know, my wife being patient with me and being with my family and starting a brand new thing and taking care of a three or four month old, that I felt like every expectation that I had set up in my mind, every expectation that I thought it was going to be, and this tends to be the way a lot of times, was not exactly what came down the pipe my direction. And, when I'm talking specifically about millennials, like honestly, what is our problem? We have literally every convenience. We have every single thing you could possibly imagine. We're the richest generation that has ever existed and we are bereft of purpose. So many of us have no grounding. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. We don't know what direction to head. And I think Jesus does a pretty good job of explaining that in Matthew 11, 1 through 19. It's a passage, so stick with me. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. (laughs) Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? And here's where we're going to land this. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. We have a new American condition. Far worse than it's ever been before because we've seen it all and we can see it all and we have access to it all. We compare ourselves to each other on a scale that has never been seen in all of history. We compare our marriages to other marriages. We compare our child rearing to other people's child rearing. We compare our careers to other careers. In my generation, and I remember this, like I went through the whole process, like sixth grade was the first time we had internet in our house, so I remember phones actually attached to the wall, if you can believe it or not. Bob asked me that when we were on our way to the men's conference, I was texting my wife on the phone, and he looks over at me, and goes, do you remember phones? I'm like, what do you mean, remember phones? It's like, attached to the wall. I'm like, yeah, I remember. (laughs) I remember phones. I'm an elder millennial, as it were. But as as time progressed, more and more and more and more, we had more at our fingertips, and now we have a computer in our hands that is more powerful than the computer that sent astronauts to the moon. Far more, actually, and much cheaper. And none of it has satisfied purpose, and none of it has made us happy. And we're like the generation, we played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. We have wealth and we're not happy. We have what we call freedom, which is really not freedom at all. And we're saying, please, for the love of God, with our actions, give us boundaries. (laughs) One of the deepest forms of suffering is lack of purpose and lack of meaning. And I remember so many times, and I think this is a cyclical thing, when Bob asked me to talk about what. The meaning of life, or how do we get our vision focused, or speak to millennials specifically about what it looks like to to live life on purpose, and the reality is, I'm 33. I'm not 100% sure, (laughs) because life changes every single day. There's so many expectations I had set, and there's so many things in my mind the way that I thought life would go. And honestly, here's what I can tell you at this point so far. Expect the absolutely unexpected. Keep your eyes focused on Christ and what he's done for you. But besides that, I'm not 100% sure what else to tell you. The gospel is true and almost nothing else. (laughs) What you see in front of you, even the world that you live in, The Instagram scrolling and the Facebook arguments, they're all fake and posturing. The reality is what you're looking at so many times in this day and age isn't even the real world. Think about that. Think about how often your interactions aren't actually with another human being specifically. Think about the last time you sat down in a room for three or four hours and had a long conversation with somebody. That's what people used to do for entertainment. Now we have a whole generation of people that can't look someone in the eye because they're looking down at their phones constantly. They're connected to a world that is made up. What happens to a whole generation of people? So if we take it all the way back, let's go back to my dad's generation in the 1960s. My dad was a Vietnam vet. He came back. There's the sexual revolution, which essentially has ruined millions of lives, and then you move on from there into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and as technology progresses and we become more and more detached from each other, we lose more and more and more purpose. And there's a couple of things happening specifically that started in the boomer generation but have taken root in the millennial generation, and there's two things, I believe, Two things I believe that are destroying us from the inside out, but there's an answer and we'll get to that. The first is vanity, or nilism, as some people call it. This has its roots in atheism. If there's no great judge, if there's no creator, if there's nobody that put us together, if there's no actual purpose in life, what is the point of being moral? What is the point of doing the right thing? What is the point of settling down? Why don't you just fill your body with as many substances as possible and feel all the things you can feel to try and fill the gap that should be filled by family and relationships and God? People are going to universities all across this country and being taught the doctrine that nothing matters except for what you feel in the moment. That's a real thing that's taking place and, the, and what it produces is miserable people. And I'll prove it to you with statistics in a second. But what it produces is people that are miserable, but misery loves company, doesn't it? So it needs to tell other people, come be miserable with me. And no one really wants to admit this about our generation. No one really wants to say it. But man, (laughs) as a pastor to my own generation, let me just say like, the amount of men that I have conversations with that Are absolutely rudderless in life. Because even though they've stepped into a Christian faith and they're following Jesus, they still have this root of, well, what does it matter, anyways? I'm gonna change jobs in a few years, anyways. I'm gonna move cities. I'm gonna go find the new thing. I'm gonna go travel. I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go do this. Because they see, scrolling through, well, I could have a different wife. well, I could have a different job. Well, I could go travel to this place, or I could do this thing. And what does it matter as long as I'm happy and fulfilled or what they think is fulfillment? The other element that's tearing apart our generation is chaos. What do I mean by that? 20 million homes in America right now are fatherless. That's homes. What's the main thing a father brings to a home? Even if he's an average dad. Stability and order. He brings order out of the chaos. If you read the account of Genesis, read all the way through the first chapter of Genesis, you'll notice something really significant. God only creates twice. The rest of the time, he's creating distinctions. He's making order out of chaos. And when we step away from our creator, we begin to see chaos take root in the minds of people and therefore then in their lives and in their families. And a fatherless generation, even more than the generation before us, is being born right now that is hopeless. (laughs) Let me tell you the root of all of this. It's rooted in materialism. It's rooted in thinking that what we see and what we feel and what's right in front of us is the only real thing. And what that turns into is a whole generation of people treating human beings like possessions to accumulate before they pass away and money to accumulate and influence to accumulate before they pass away. Because that's the important thing. The things that you have and even people have become things. Think about it. I've got 5,000 friends on Facebook. No, you don't. You don't have a single friend on Facebook. Oh, this many people follow me. What do you mean by follow? What's the reality of that? Like, what's the reality of what we're looking at? The reality is we are friendless, especially men. Most men say they have One friend in their life, and you know who that person is, their best friend? Most of the time, their wife. About 70% of men say that. You know how many women say that? About 30%. (laughs) Women are usually better at making friends and having social connections. I know, like, in Southern California, like, I wouldn't have any friends if it weren't for my wife, (laughs) She always introduces us to people. I'm like, babe, I don't want to go. This is so stupid. Another dinner. Ugh, Like, this is the worst. I don't want to talk to another single human being <laughs> for the rest of my life right now. She's like, babe, you love them. You go to dinner. And then I end up making a friend. And she's like, I told you on the way. I'm like, I wanted to go the whole time. I love these people. They're my friends, actually. I'm the one that thought of this. I'm going to read you some statistics about us. Now, don't get too down. Well, you're going to get down on these. Man, this is rough. This is about fatherlessness in our generation. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, five times the average, which is sad in and of itself. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. In education, children with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. Children with fathers who are involved are 70% less likely to drop out of school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to get A's in school. Children with fathers who are involved are more likely to enjoy school and engage in extracurricular activities. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Ten times the average. 43% of U.S. children live without their father. You see, the original thought of nothing matters and the original thought of chaos and the original thought of I can do whatever I want sexually. I can do whatever I want with my life. I make my own choices. Nobody tells me what to do. And the idea of success is separating from your family and not listening to people older than you has been tried. It has been measured. And it has been found wanting. It has rot in a society from the inside out. It is rotting people's hearts from the inside out. And you know what the worst part about it is? It offered a false hope, and now we're hopeless. We're looking around the world and begging for someone to father us, begging for someone to lead us, begging for someone to take care of us. And you know who's stepping in right now? Political ideology, to name a few, name one. Professors that have never stepped out of a library to live a real life and raise a real family. Not all of them, but very many. We have people teaching business in business schools that have never run a business. Doesn't that sound insane to anybody in here? Teaching your kids or teaching our kids about life that have never really lived it and never sat in one place and took the time to raise a family. That's real life. And I think so many of us are looking to success in career or success in accumulation in one way, shape, or form. It doesn't matter what kind of accumulation it actually is. And I know I fall into this trap all the time, constantly. And it drives my wife crazy. She's like, why are you worried about money again? Because she's like, wouldn't you just be more worried if you had more of it? Like, Yes, that's probably true. It's just more bills to pay, (laughs) more things to take care of. I think, especially for us, the connection here is that we actually don't know exactly what to do, and we've lost our bearing. Think of it like this. So imagine you have a group of 20-somethings from the middle of the city. We're suburban kids, too. Maybe they've never been camping before, never been out in the wilderness, never pitched a tent, never started their own fire. They've, you know, grown up in a world they're tech tech natives, as we call it. And there's one wilderness explorer that takes them out into the woods to, you know, show them what it's like out there. These group of 20-somethings get dropped off in the middle of a wilderness, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, drops them off and says, isn't it beautiful, everyone? Okay, now everyone, give me your compass. I'm leaving. Excuse me? I know you've never been here before, but um, you can go any direction you want to go, and that's fine. You can go anywhere, and it's beautiful, Anywhere out here will be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, as long as you're happy with the next step that you take. Can I tell you something about hiking in the woods, especially at high elevation? Any direction does not make you happy, especially if you have not a clue what you're doing. This is what the authorities in our society are teaching people right now, from top to bottom. Go any direction you want. I hold the compass, but you don't need that. I'm going to go sit next to the campfire and read some books. Figure it out. Finding your way in life is not a matter of just going whichever direction you prefer. It's going the way that Christ has shown us. This has happened before in society. If we took a look at Roman society when Paul the Apostle was going around preaching, We would be shocked at some of the pictures that they have on the water dish that they serve at dinner at Caesar's table. It was a lewd, terrible society that had lost all moral bearing whatsoever, and they were essentially pagan. And that's where we're heading as a society as well. In so many ways, we're heading that direction. But you know what? The gospel thrives in a pagan environment. The gospel thrives on the fringes because it works. It is actually effective in transforming people's lives. What's the solution? I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. How do we fulfill our purpose together in this generation? Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, and our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. Be fruitful and increase in number. Well, we all know what happened in the next chapter after this. (laughs) They screwed up. They chose to make their own way to good and evil, which is the original sin, is not taking God's way of being good, and they got booted out of the garden. But we move to John 1, and what does John 1 talk about? The Word was with God, and the Word was in the beginning with God. John is talking about a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. What does the Bible say? It says he was the firstborn of many brethren, right? Jesus is resurrected and alive, and as a human being, mind you, this is the weirdest thing, that To wrap my head around, as a human being, he's seated at the right hand of God, ruling the universe and doing it well and interceding on our behalf in the firstborn of a brand new creation. What happens in the garden right when he's resurrected? What's the first thing that happens? He runs into Mary, right? She thinks he's the gardener. What was Adam's profession? He was a gardener. Who was the first person to fall in the garden? Eve. Who was the first person to share the news of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Eve, with her husband. Now, Jesus, resurrected, walking in the garden. First person he bumps into? Is a person that almost has no place in that society whatsoever, but he chooses to redeem womankind right then and there on the spot with the gospel of the brand new creation. And she's the first to deliver the good news to Jesus' brothers. He reverses the entire order of the fall, flips it on its head through his resurrection. And uses women to share the good news. The tree of life is now available to mankind again through the way of Jesus Christ. So we're looking for a way out of the wilderness. We're looking for a compass. We're looking for someone to tell us which way to go. You know what I don't like? And this is going to be, this might be unpopular. But I don't like the word Christian. Because everyone says that they are. Right? It's like one of those things like, I'm a Christian, and I believe nothing in the Bible. I'm a Christian, and I believe everything in the Bible is absolutely and completely 100% literal. And everything in between. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know what people called themselves at the beginning of Christianity in the early church? The way. Isn't that interesting? And what a cool name. I just think that's just like such a baller name. I'm a follower of the way. But what does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so many times, we think we're a Christian. But the solution to all of our problems and what we're looking for is the way. The way out of chaos into order. The way out of meaninglessness into hope. The way out. He is the way out and the way into the kingdom of heaven. What was most of Jesus preaching about? Oh, if you see, say this prayer, you know, after I die and raise again, I'm, there's going to be this prayer that you pray. And when you pray that prayer, you're going to be Christian now. <laughs> no, that's not what he preached about. Surprise. He preached about the kingdom of heaven and the entrance of the kingdom of heaven. He preached about himself. He was, in a sense, the kingdom because he is the king. He talked about living in a brand new way and a brand new way to be human. That's why it's so mind-boggling that the early church even worked. They had to make it up on the spot. I don't know. What's it look like when you go from worshiping demon gods and having sex with prostitutes and festivals and everyone thinking that's a good thing into completely switching the opposite direction. And only having monogamous relationships, and everybody in your town knows what's going on. In our society, what does it look like to absolutely worship sex and say you can do whatever you want and then go to a completely celibate lifestyle and live in a way that is pure before God? The Romans were confused by Christians because everyone in Roman society gave their bodies away and kept their money. The Christians gave all their money away and kept their bodies. And I think people should see that we are that city set on a hill as well. The only way that this society, that this culture is going to find its way is if we restart the family God is trying to to start. What he's talking about is family from start to finish. God wants a family and the reason he sent his son is because he wants his family back. That's why Jesus says, I'm the way to the father Enter in through me. I will make a way for you into this new structure, this new family, this new way of living. It's so much better than anything else the world has to offer. His plan from the beginning was family. His plan from the start was family. From start to finish, if you watch the thread of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through to the book of Revelation... The idea is heaven coming to earth, and how does that happen? Through our relationships and through family. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How dare we remove that prayer from its place? How dare we say he doesn't want us to bring heaven ourselves to earth through how we live our lives? You know how crazy it is to live the way that you live? You believe in someone that died on a cross for your sins 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. You believe someone rose from the dead. Just leave it at that. You believe that. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, Jesus physically, physically rose from the dead. And we're supposed to follow his example in bringing this world to life through family. What does that family look like? Look to your left and look to your right. There's no slave, no free, nor Jew, nor Greek. May I say no black, no white, no rich, no poor. Because Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the central focus of this family. And if we can get that right, if we can be followers of the way, it's so simple, it's silly, but it's difficult. And the worship team can come back up now. It's so unbelievably simple. Jesus isn't saying if we try super hard, we'll be the city set on a hill. He's saying when we believe and obey, it will be blatantly obvious that we are a city set on a hill. It is obvious when people are worshiping Jesus. It is obvious when people are following him. It is obvious because they are a city set on a hill. Our job is simple. He asks the question, follow me. Follow me. Very straightforward. It will be the best adventure of your life. <laughs> I can't promise things will get better, but I can promise you you'll have hope. I can promise you you have a purpose. I can promise you that you'll have a new family.
0: Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you feel inspired, encouraged, and empowered to change the world for the name of Jesus. Make sure to tune in and listen to our other podcasts and download our app, Salt Churches, found on iTunes. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Thanks. Have a great day.